Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at Michael Schumacher's early F1 years and ask if they're too often overlooked. Today, January the 3rd, is the 50th birthday of undoubtedly one of the greatest and most divisive Grand Prix drivers in history, Michael Schumacher. To mark the occasion, we're looking back at his early years in Formula 1 from 1991 to 1995 with the help of special interviews with Pat Simmons, who worked closely with Schumacher at Benetton, and Gary Anderson, who for one famous weekend saw Schumacher in action at Jordan. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me for this celebration of a part of Schumacher's career that perhaps isn't talked about enough is Glenn Freeman. Now, while Schumacher was objectively a better driver during his Ferrari years, as like all good drivers, he got better and better with age, what he achieved with Benetton winning the 94 and 95 titles really was remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah, it's remarkable if you look at the sort of team that Benetton were before this little period of success and the team that they were for the decade that followed. Because let's not forget, this is what eventually became the Renault team that took Fernando Alonso to two world championships. So I think sometimes the fact that there was subsequent success makes people look back at the Benetton era in the 1990s and go, well, that's the Endstone team. They clearly showed that with the investment, they were, they were always good enough to do that. But as 
I know Pat Simmons has said uh, in an interview with F1 Racing, Benetton didn't necessarily feel that way in the early 90s when they first picked Schumacher up. And I think he was part of that driving force that turned them into that sort of team, which when you remember how good Williams and McLaren had been in the 80s and at the start of the 1990s, for anyone to get in amongst those two teams or capitalise on when they dropped the ball, that's a, that's a huge achievement. And I think 94 and 95 for Schumacher have just been put in the shade really by the run of five world championships with Ferrari and that's somewhat understandable but that's what I think makes this podcast episode great is that we're looking back at something where that perhaps we don't talk about enough and uh, you know those stories are always more fun. And it's interesting as well because those Benetton years there was a lot of what came to be the success of Ferrari that was being created there because you saw people like Ross Braun moving across to Ferrari, Roy Byrne so you you had a core of people who were then transplanted across. So it wasn't just Schumacher doing well in in another team. It was it's kind of the a, a vague sort of prototype, if you like. And you could see that clearly Schumacher knew what he wanted and how things should be done, and could work with these types of people almost from the off because he became a a podium finisher in Formula One pretty much immediately. He was just did a few races, and then suddenly he was the Benetton team leader and. It was no surprise to see him second, third at the, at the end of Grand Prix, and he picks up the picks up the odd win in uh, ninety two and ninety three. So, this is part of the story, and a part of the story that too often kind of gets disconnected. It's almost like it's a just a, a little prelude. That oh, by the way, he won two world championships, which incidentally is as many as Fernando Alonso won. So that's a huge amount of success. Even if he'd not gone on, even if he'd said at the end of ninety six, at the end of ninety five, rather, oh, I'm going to retire. Then he said, well, that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? That'd have been a phenomenal but very short F1 career. And let's not forget that 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 short period in 91 at Benetton, if there was any chance of Nelson Piquet trying to extend his F1 career at all, I think once he saw Schumacher coming along, he thought, you know what? I don't need this. I've made enough money. I'm I'm relatively still intact from a sort of health and fitness point of view, which drivers had to consider back then. So he thought, I'll go and do the Indy 500. Yeah, and just smash myself up a little bit more. But seeing a guy like Schumacher come through then, you're going, I'm at this age, I've got three world championships already. PK knew that he didn't have it in him to match Schumacher over the years that followed. And straight away, PK was out-qualified those four races. Yes. Schumacher did with Benetton at the end of 91 after moving from Jordan. Out-qualified him every time. Yes, I think PK realised, right, my time's up, I'm out of here. And then really that kind of cleared the path for Schumacher just get on with making Benetton his own team, which is what we saw over the years that followed. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 interesting the, the way it all happened as well. Uh, we're going to hear from Gary Anderson in a minute, the technical director of Jordan, who was running the Jordan team trackside when Schumacher made his debut at Spa in, in 1991. And Schumacher came in with a tremendous amount of success in Formula 3, won the Macau Grand Prix. He was a race-winning driver in the World Sports Car Championship with with Sauber Mercedes. Even so, the instant impact he was able to make that weekend was what laid the foundations for all to follow. It's what we see from a great. They're given like one chance and it's just bang, I'm going to do something magical. You know, that weekend's never been forgotten. And he only lasted about 15 seconds in the race before his clutch went. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the great thing is that he delivered the day before in qualifying, or on the two days before, because obviously we had two-day qualifying back then, put the car seventh on the grid. So he'd already bought himself the credit in that if the car was going to let him down, as it did, and as I know Gary's about to explain for us the reasons behind that, he'd already made a mark in F1. That actually, he didn't need to get much further than La Source in the Belgian Grand Prix to, to make an impact. Had he qualified 15th that day, then maybe the the wranglings that followed and the bids from Benetton, which I know we'll get into 
to get him out of Jordan immediately might not have happened. But as you say, that's what great drivers do. It's what someone like Lewis Hamilton, you know, makes a sensational rally outside pass on Fernando Alonso at the start of his very first Grand Prix when Alonso was the man in Formula One, the reigning world champion at the time. The real superstars can make an impact from the off. And that's exactly what we saw from Michael in that all too brief, Eddie Jordan might say, um, foray in the beautiful Jordan 191. Well, let's hear from Gary Anderson, then technical director at Jordan. Of course, the background to this is Bertrand Gachet was unavailable. He'd been sentenced after a altercation with a taxi driver. In fact, that had occurred the previous December and it only came up uh, in the middle of the, the following year. So Jordan missing a driver and Gary Anderson picks up the story. Well, it was, it was actually very strange because we were testing in Monza and uh, Bertram Gashew had had his little episode with the taxi driver in London and uh, Bertram was in court the day before the test. So the first day of testing in Monza, Andrea de Cesars was driving for us and Bertram was supposed to come the next day. Unfortunately, he got a lift in a van to somewhere else um, and got locked up. So we didn't have a you know a driver come up to the Belgian Grand Prix. And Eddie called me uh, in Monza and he's told me all this, this, this story about Bertram, what happened. And I sort of said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, we've got a couple of drivers I was thinking on um, Stefan Johansson or Damon Hill. And I said, have you ever thought on this guy called Michael Schumacher? I said, I don't know him from Adam. And I, I really didn't. But I said, I've just happened to be watching the, the race from Macau before we came to the test. Um, it was the year before, I think it was, a Macau race. And, Where he beat Hackenham. Yeah, after an and, altercation. Uh, after an altercation, and and I said the, the guy, you know, did pretty good. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, all right. I said I'll, I'll you know get on the have a blue have a few phone calls and see what happens. So um, I got back from the test in Monza, and um, the next thing is Eddie's made contact with Michael and his management and Willie Weber and all that stuff, and uh, he was the plan for for the race in Spa, and he was going to come to Silverstone and and. Um, have a seat fitting and do a few laps around Silverstone and get used to the car before we went to, to, to Spa. And uh, so I thought, well, that's good. I said, you know, told me all about, Eddie told me all about him driving for Mercedes and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's good. He'll have, at least he'll have experience around Spa, the, you know, the sports car thing. So Michael came and sitting on the bench in the workshop, as you do, because we didn't have anywhere else to sit. And he's having his seat fitting type thing. And I said to him, oh, good, you know, you, you'll know Spa going there. It's not, at least it's not new to you. And he said, oh, never been around there in my life. I thought, oh, God, here we go. So, um, yeah, it was a very simple thing, really. He got in the car testing at Silverstone and the South Circuit, and um, from the minute he went out, he was just, you know, he was just on it. Um, his car control and his confidence and the little chicane where he stood and watched was just phenomenal to the extent that Trevor Foster was, was with us at the time, and Trevor called him in after sort of three laps um, because he was you know, looked like he might just have an off. And this was one of the cars going to Spa. We didn't have a test car as such. Trevor said, no, you know, you don't have to go too hard. I said, I'm not, I'm not going hard. I'm not pushing. He said, it's just, want to find out what the car feels like. So from, as I say, from lap one, you sort of could see the confidence in him. And then um, off we went to Spa, basically. And, you know, it's obviously a difficult track, difficult circumstances and stuff. And Andrea had been in the car all year and had a good, Andrea the Cheshire's, and had a good understanding of the car. The car was one of those, it was a good car in fast corners, very stable under brake and corner entry. Um, had a bit of low speed understeer. And um, explained that to, to Michael, that was a sort of general characteristic of the car and it was very difficult to get to, to do anything with it. If you fixed the low speed understeer, the car, the rear of the car got nervous in the fast corners. 
So we felt it was a, the more stable thing and it protected the rear tyres, which is a big thing even these days, but it protected the rear tyres and the race and so on and so forth. Um, and he you know, did one couple of runs and he, he said, look, you know, can we have a little go at fixing this understeer a bit? So we did a couple of changes and made it a bit better, but he came back and said, no, I agree with you. It's you know bigger deficit than it is a positive. Um, so, you know, just from, from the first time in the car, he just had that confidence. And uh, at, on the Friday night, we said to him, you know, about um, El Rouge being flat out, because at that time it was quite tricky, flat out. Uh, and he hadn't taken it flat out, neither had Andrea. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be flat tomorrow. I just you know, didn't want to do it today. I didn't need to throw it in the heads today, really. So um, next morning, first lap, you know, timed lap, bang, flat out through there. I think it took Andrea to the last lap of qualifying before he did it. But again, Michael, he just he knew what he was capable of doing, and he, he would he wouldn't make false promises, and uh, you know he, he just had that. Well, he had the belief in himself and the talent to to back it up, and uh, you know just was very good to work with. Obviously, it was a very short term for us, but it was a you know it was very good to work with him for that. It gave us all confidence, to be honest. Such a pity in the race, but uh, sometimes that's the way it happens. Well, and to have him seventh on the grid. I guess even though it was going well, was that a bit of a surprise? Just just how strong he was able to. I mean, looking at the the gap, Andrea de Cesaris was eleventh, and the gap was about eight tenths from from Michael to to Andrea. So uh, clearly, he was delivering a level of performance from the car that perhaps hadn't been seen previously. In the well, season. yes, and that, and that's what I say. Give us confidence that before we were as a team, because you know everything's relative, isn't it? You know, look at look at this year. Look at Mercedes, and if if Valtteri Bottas was your lead driver. You wouldn't be looking quite as good as it is with, with uh, Lewis Hamilton being your lead driver. Um, so it's all relative to who you got in the car, and that was a, a, an example of what could happen if you uh, if you got your act together and had the right people, the right team. Um, seventh on the grid at Spa was was you know was exceptional, I think, for the team that we were at that time. You know, we still we were very small, still a very small team, and. Um, the car was a good little car. The good thing about the car was, you know, it hadn't got the ultimate pace, but you could get into the car and you could do a good job on it quickly. Then to take it that step further it was quite tough. But, uh, you know, initially it had confidence. It was a confidence-inspiring car, I think. And that suited that situation quite well. And what went wrong in the race? Because Michael only made it as far as the, the Radion, basically. Yeah, it was it was all a, a bit of a sort of set of circumstances. Um Basically, within the clutch, uh, there was there's a, an aluminium hub that takes the drive from the clutch shaft to the clutch plates. Uh, it's just an aluminium splined inside, splined outside as such. And then the carbon plates fit onto that aluminium hub. And um, the, the clutch manufacturers had a problem with this aluminium hub on some teams, and they'd made a new titanium hub. Um, but we couldn't afford it, really. Um, and they had a lot of the new aluminium ones so they supplied them to us cheap because they're no good to them. And, you know, the, the big teams, the Williams and such, didn't want these aluminium hubs because they were a bit risky. But we put new ones in all the time. And in theory, it shouldn't have been a drama. But on the HB engine, because of the HB engine that we had, we had to use a, um, a, a, a lighter clutch as such, or a thinner clutch, less plates in it than other teams um, because of a vibration in the back of the crankshaft. And... Um, it put more heat into the clutch. And then obviously the combination of uphill start at Spa, which we'd never done before, and a new driver who'd never done a start in a, a real start in the Formula One car in those circumstances. 
um, Michael did the initial start okay. That was all fine. But he went to the hairpin and there was a little bit of traffic and a bit of argy-bargy going on. So he sort of dipped the clutch and did another start as such um, because of all the cars around him. And that just overheated the clutch and melted this aluminium hub. If we'd had the budget to buy the titanium ones, we wouldn't have had a problem. If we had known that this could happen, we could have warned Michael you know, not to do that type of thing um, or to be a bit more gentle with the clutch. You know, It's all ifs. Um, but basically it melted the, the drive between the, the flywheel and the, and the gearbox shaft and um, that was it, done and dusted. And of course it's a very famous race because of Michael's debut, even though it didn't last very long, but it could have been even more famous because if you look at what happened in the race, Andrea Cesaris actually came pretty close to winning. He was hassling at the centre, I think had a gearbox problem towards the end before uh, before retiring. I guess the nature of the problem that put him out would have probably put Michael's car out as well, chances are, but um, maybe explain that and also just sort of speculate on what Michael maybe could have done. Could he could he have got even got into the lead before uh, before retiring? Well, Michael was on for the race, and he had you know when the, when the clutch thing happened at the first corner, he was making up places. He wasn't losing places, so you know he would have been better than seventh out of the hairpin. Um, so you've got to say that had the same race happened with him in it, then um, there's a good chance he would have been leading. But that's enough and a but again. But as far as Andrea was concerned, yeah, we got up to second position. I think we were two, three seconds behind Ayrton Senna or something. Ayrton had a gearbox problem, so he was limping a bit. But we were still running second after all the kerfuffle of others falling out or whatever. And uh, the engine um, blew up. And basically it was because the there'd been some different pistons put in the engine and the oil consumption had increased. And um, we hadn't been told us all, of us oil consumption increase. So we put in the normal you know, 300 kilometres worth of oil burning oil, which, you know, let's say, for example, it was like two litres or something extra in the tank for the race um, and basically ran out of oil and El Rouge being such a dramatic corner uh, the oil level getting lower and lower and lower there with oil, oil pressure spikes and uh, basically blew up the engine I think it was what three laps from the end of the race or something um, so yes it was an if and a but there as well we had plenty of capacity in the tank to put more oil in if we had known um, we didn't you know say we could have fixed all those circumstances like we could have fixed the clutch problem like we could have all of those things are, were, they were all fixable, and then you could have said, "Oh well, if it all gone the same way, we, we could not only have won the race, but we could add a one too." Um, but that's the F of Formula One. That's why I will say F Formula One backwards. Um, F will always be around, and they're tough to take at times. I mean, that's the first time I think I've probably had a tear in my eye when Andrea retired because I did think that we were going to win the race. Um, I think both Eddie and I had a tear in her eye that time. So yeah, but you look back at it, what what. Uh, makes you stronger but overall the, the experience of working with Michael Schumacher however briefly I guess with what he's gone on to achieve must be a, a kind of high point of her career at least you had the chance to get a little bit of a, a view of him and, and at the time would you have would it have surprised you if someone had said yeah this is a guy who's going to win many world championships was he you, you've clearly said he was he was impressive but was he impressive at that level that you'd have at the point Benetton was prizing him away he said yeah don't blame him for doing that they've, they've got someone who's going to win them world titles I mean, it's a tough one, to be honest to say, because obviously I've been involved in Formula 1 for a long time and I've, I've seen lots and lots and lots of different drivers. But in my own car, doing you know, responding to the situation with driver's input, um, that was my first year with uh, Andrea and, and Bertram Gasho. And very competent drivers. Um, Bertram would be a little bit... Well, Andrea came a lot of experience. And it really helped us quite a lot because he, he brought to the team um, the experience that we would 
you know, not have had. Um, just to what circuits brought, you know, what, what characteristics of circuits were going to, how the car setup needed to change for a certain other type of track. And um, Bertram didn't bring as much of that, but he brought, you know, a bit of youth and a bit of enthusiasm to it all. And he, you know, he was quick, Bertram, whenever he had, you know, whenever everything pushed come to shove, he was pretty quick. He'd make a few mistakes here and there, but with Michael, whenever he got in the car, you could, you could just feel this, this different level. He, he wasn't there to be just a number. He was there to be potentially to win. And you could see that it was going to happen for him at some point in time. Would he, would you have said he'd have won seven world championships? Not the Michael Schumacher you know, we had, but, the Michael Schumacher that pushed himself to that level, yes, you know, he, he kept pushing himself to move on forward a bit and, and be better all the time. It wasn't, you know, it didn't come easy. It didn't come just because he was Michael Schumacher that, you know, needed to work on as well. And he did that through the years. And, and happily, you know, through all his years, I, I was able to, you know, we, we kept in touch because obviously he was going racing, I was going racing, and we did have the odd chat. And the Michael Schumacher that the public saw of this guy rushing through the paddock and speaking to nobody in that, that was because everybody just wanted a part of his time. He needed his own privacy. You know, he was a he was a very private guy. But when you got him, you know, alone, he would, you know, you could have a bit of fun with him and a, a bit of a drink, and we've had a few of those. And uh, you know, it 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 was his belief in his own talent that basically got him there. And uh, I suppose you could see that from the very beginning that he did believe in his own ability and his own talent, and that would get him there as long as he'd work at it and get the opportunities. You need the opportunities, you know. But uh, yeah. Very a pleasurable time. Well, some great insight from from Gary there, and of course, amazing to think that it's not that outlandish to think he could have even got into the lead in that race, or at least if he'd finished, if he'd finished, he'd at least been on the podium and could have even won, which would have made a sensational story even even more remarkable. Now, Glenn, what happened after was Flavio Briatore and Benetton moved very very quickly. The next race, which was uh, would have been Monza. Michael Schumacher was in a Benetton, replacing Roberto Moreno. In fact, Moreno later found himself in a Jordan, uh, briefly. It was controversial. It was There was all sorts of uh, legal arguments about whether Jordan had a contract with Schumacher or not. It was quite messy, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's F1 politics probably at their best or worst, depending on your perspective of it. And we have to remember that Eddie Jordan, who perhaps became a shrewd operator in the F1 paddock, you know, here he's in his first season in F1, and I think he has admitted since that this was certainly one where he now accepts that he and Jordan themselves dropped the ball contractually. They didn't have the watertight agreement that they obviously wish now that or wish then that they did have, uh, which would have locked Schumacher into Jordan for potentially at least a couple more seasons and maybe up to even 1994. Yeah, which would have changed uh, changed history somewhat. It was impressive that Benetton were willing to go to that length to, to get Schumacher, it shows the impact he made. They were willing to go through all this legal procedure and it was a, it's stretching a point to say it was on a technicality, but because what had been signed between Jordan and Schumacher was not very precise, it was quite easy for them to get out of it. Jordan didn't get anything out of, uh, out of no, Schumacher because I mean, they, they, they effectively didn't have a contract or didn't yeah. have the contract they thought they had. Yeah, I mean, this is a Flavio Briatore masterclass, I'm sure. And uh, I know that there's talk that Bernie Eccleston perhaps played a role in we should probably give some credit here to uh, our sister title, Motorsport News, because back in their 50th anniversary celebratory issue in 2005, uh, they uncovered a piece of paperwork. I think the only paperwork, perhaps, that Jordan had regarding a Schumacher deal. And I know that, Ed, you've been rummaging around our archives in Feltham and 
have uncovered that article and uh, some of the revelations that MN uncovered back in 05 were fascinating, weren't they? And the tiny, tiny details on which, on which, as you said earlier, F1 history can be completely changed. Well, it's all small details, isn't it? There's a reference to, I will sign a driver agreement with you prior to Monza for this. And that, A, actually replaces the word the, which has been crossed out. And that maybe weakened it. But even if they needed to refer to a specific contract as to what the deal would be, because, you know, signing a contract or even the contract, what does it refer to? What does it mean? What are you actually mean anything, undertaking? To, I mean, if you read that, you say, well, clearly that's an undertaking to carry on. But yeah, you, you can drive a coach and horses through that uh, quite quite easily. It's uh, yeah, fascinating. I mean, it's only three paragraphs long. It's, it's a very short uh, letter of intent. So I'm sure quite a few point. amendments as well. So yes. at that point, yeah. if I was Eddie Jordan, I'd be thinking, why are there so many bits of this letter that are crossed out, even though it's got Michael's signature at the bottom? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's, uh, I mean, it will have hurt Jordan that they weren't able to get anything out of it. And in fact, later on, Eddie Jordan made quite a good living out of having drivers under contract and then sometimes selling them on. And in fact... Including a sh- another Schumacher. Yes. Well, this well, this was all after Ralph Schumacher didn't win the Belgian Grand Prix, didn't he? That, that Michael decided probably Ralph would be better off elsewhere. And he played a part in helping ease Ralph out of his out of his Jordan contract, all legitimately. But, you know, money solves just about, <laughs> just about anything. But... I think all credit to Benetton for moving so quickly to, Great to, opportunism. to to get this driver because you know he was just a guy who was doing sports cars at that time very successfully part of the Mercedes junior team but he wasn't winning all the world sports car championship races he, he had a couple of wins in his world sports car championship career one of those actually coming after his F1 debut because uh, he completed the the 91 season so it wasn't like he was the driver everyone was in, was automatically clamoring for they knew who he was he was clearly very good but that sharpness really really paid Benetton back because if they didn't have him who would they have had to to spearhead this this rise to be a championship team yeah it's really hard to tell and you don't know what their plans would have been Martin Brundle was obviously in the other car in 92 as teammate to Schumacher and I think Briatore has since admitted that perhaps he his perception of Brundle as a driver was was unfair in the end because he didn't like how Brundle compared to Schumacher and felt that he should have been beating him and actually, with with the driver that Michael went on to be, it now means that Brundle's season at Benetton is kind of reflected on better than it was at the time. So this is how the emergence of Michael Schumacher in Formula 1 did change F1 history in so many ways. You know, could Brundle have been at Benetton in those years that followed? They might have formed quite a good partnership. And maybe Martin Brundle would be a Grand Prix winner now because he'd have eventually got into some race winning Benettons as the team got stronger and stronger under Schumacher's leadership. And... I think that's that's fascinating. That also shows that although we can look back now at the end of 91 and particularly 92 and 93 when he won one race per season and we can say, yeah, you know, he was establishing himself. He was showing that behind the dominant Williams cars and, of course, Ayrton Senna and the McLaren, you know, he was showing that he was stepping up and ready to go at that level. But at the time, Benetton still wasn't the finished article as a team and Michael was still very young, very early in his Formula One career. So... I think we've got to be careful not to look back with 20 years of hindsight here and realise that actually he was taking an incredible step kind of each season and that culminated in being ready to take on the challenge of Williams and Ayrton Senna, which should have been a formidable combination in 1994. But let's not forget that Schumacher beat Senna in a straight fight first time out at Interlagos. Well, joining me is Pat Simmons to talk a little bit about Michael Schumacher. Of course, you had a almost unique experience of working with him as Benetton. You race engineered him to both of his uh, world titles with Benetton in 94 and, and 95. 
just give us a little bit of insight into the into the driver he was when you were first involved with him. It would have been ninety two, having come back from the Reynard F one project. Was it clear immediately that he was more than just a, an ordinary driver? Yeah, I, I think it was obvious uh, from the start in ninety two that Michael was pretty special. Now, I have to say that uh, prior to that, I didn't know a great deal about him. I knew he'd been very successful in sports cars, but it really wasn't until Spa onwards in, in 91 when he he really came to everyone's attention, uh, myself included. And it was pretty obvious he was good. Now, those last races he did in 91 uh, with Benetton, I wasn't at Benetton at the time because a few of us had left Benetton tried to start the Reynard Formula One project. Uh, that hadn't worked. So we'd gone back to Benetton at the end of 91. So um, I really started working with, with Michael uh, in that pre-season testing in, in 92. And in fact, uh, our sort of major test then was uh, at Kyle Army because that was when the, where the first race was. And I think that's where we really first got to, to know each other. And where I think we also formed this bond that is so important between a race engineer and a race driver. And uh, I remember particularly, um, as you remember, Kyle Army will probably remember, there's one very fast corner in it, probably a fourth gear corner in the cars in those days, five-speed gearbox cars. Um, but but pretty quick. We got we got the car quite nicely balanced, but it it was definitely uh, a little bit nervous through that that corner. And um, Michael, I think, had been used to sort of being a bit of an engineer himself, and he wanted certain things done to the car. You know, the sort of classic things: should we put a stiffer front roll bar on? Should we take a bit of front wing off? But I, I knew that those were things that were going to compromise the rest of the lap. Uh, and what I wanted to do was fit a, a stiffer rear spring um, because I, I was pretty sure I knew what the problem was, which was without getting too technical, the car just bouncing on the bump rubbers and things. And he wasn't at all convinced. And I said, look, I'm the engineer, let's just do it. And uh, we did it and the car was just absolutely perfect all around the lap then. And I think that was a, you know, the singular point at which we established that bond that he was a great racing driver and uh, I was a sort of adequate engineer but it's an interesting question isn't it? we talk about engineering drivers but there is such thing as a, a driver who goes too far in, in in that regard you want a certain level of feedback but for the driver also to understand they're not the engineer yeah you uh, are and so was, was michael on the right sort of balance yeah, of that absolutely that's absolutely right and of course michael was of an era when, when i was working with him where it was on the cusp of what you where the 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 data acquisition, if you like, passed from the, the driver in the 80s, you know, because you didn't have any electronic data acquisition. So your your one data acquisition unit was the, the guy behind the steering wheel who had to tell you everything. Today, of course, he needs to tell you virtually nothing because you have so much data. And Michael was in that transition period where we were, we had a fair amount of data, but not the sophistication we have now. So there, there was certainly a tendency when Michael came into Formula One, even in his sports car days, I think he'd had to do a fair bit of the sort of engineering and, and understanding of things. Um, whereas we were really moving into the sort of data-driven era, um, which became much more so as we moved into the, the sort of the active cars and, and stuff like that. 
So, uh, yeah, it, it was a little bit of a, a learning process for Michael to actually start trusting data, start trusting engineers to, to get that performance for him. Obviously, one of the things we associate with Schumacher is, as well as being a quick racing driver, you know, relentlessly fast in the races, able to execute the races very well. The driver in those early days, was, was that there or was that something that came on as he, as he built up experience? I think... You know, when, when, when you talk about what makes a great racing driver, the ability to go around corners fast to find the right braking point to, to handle the throttle, things like that, you, you don't actually consider because they're a given. If, if someone's got to Formula One, then one assumes that they're, they're pretty good at the, the mechanics of driving, if you like. And uh, I think what, what then becomes important to make the greats is all the added value that the driver puts on. So it's finding those little incremental bits of performance. It's, it's putting everything around him to, to get the, uh, the sort of ecosystem around him that, that provides, um, results, provides performance, provides success. And Michael was, in my mind, he was the first who, who really built that ecosystem around him. Prior to that, lots of, incredibly talented drivers you know many before my time that I know very little about but he, but even in my day uh, you know, remember I worked with Ayrton in his early days Ayrton had all those natural abilities um, every bit as much as my course and might even argue a little bit more but what he didn't do was he didn't build the ecosystem around him so you know, primary things like fitness and what have you uh, and that little attention to detail um, they weren't there before. My, my, that's what Michael brought. That's why Michael was a game changer. Because suddenly, if you were going to compete at the front, you were going to compete against Michael and you you had to up your game to, to that level. And plenty of drivers found that quite difficult. And I guess in the position Benetton was there, there was a recognition that, that this was a driver, obviously it's a team on the up, hadn't quite won championships, but was a race winning team. And that then suddenly when you've got this driver who's something a little bit a little bit more than the average, shall we say. See, PK had been there before, but that was in his sort of, did win races, but he wasn't quite the driver he, he maybe was. But suddenly you realise, actually, we've got a guy here who maybe can, can take us all away. Is that the kind of feeling you had, even as early as 92? Yeah, very much so. Um, you're quite right about Benetton. You know, we, we were a team that were finishing third in the championship, fourth in the championship, third, fourth, fifth, third. You know, we were at that sort of level, which, of course, we were happy, we, we were proud of. Uh, we were an independent team, we weren't a particularly well-financed team or anything, but um, we, we were proud of what we were doing. But all of us, everyone in Formula One's competitive, you know, it's a, it goes without saying. And we, we wanted that, that step on. And it wasn't obvious to us what we needed for that, that step forward. And then Michael came along and I think we suddenly realised that that was a very large part of what we needed. I, I, I'm not saying the team was perfect and we just needed a good driver because that's being disingenuous to the, the drivers before Michael, uh, some of whom were very good indeed. But I, I think Michael just showed us that actually it, it's not just that ability that he had, but the the whole approach to racing that all of us needed to change. And, and certainly on the engineering side, we did make those changes in the same way that that Michael had done with the the driving aspects of the sport. 
And looking at maybe at, at 92, the race obviously that stands out is the Spa victory where he made a good tyre call. I think it was based on having sight of Martin Rundle's tyres in the, right, the sister yeah. car. But didn't he have an off actually? That's why he's behind Martin. The, the that's place. right. He, he was actually, um, he, he was in front of, of Martin and uh, it, it was wet, they're on wet tyres, it was drying. Uh, it's one of those difficult situations where, you know, you're trying to push a little bit more. Uh, he pushed a little bit too hard, took to the grass, uh, no, nothing big, just, you know, off the track limits, but enough for, for Martin to get in front. And Michael sort of straight back onto to Martin's tail. And the first thing he sees is that Martin's tyres, his wet tyres, starting to chunk, which is you know, what happens to a wet tyre when it's uh, running in too dry a condition. It starts to, to overheat and... Uh, uh, and the, the, the rubber comes off in little chunks from the, the wet tyres. So immediately, um, it was on the fast part coming back down to towards the pits and he realises that, you know, the, the thing to do is to make the pit stop now because it's a, uh, another, I can't remember how long Spa is, but it's a, it's a long track, isn't it? And, a, and another lap would have been very significant. So he's straight in the pits and that, that was a winning move, there's no doubt about it. So it shows that ability to have that confidence to make those make those decisions. Obviously, there were there was a, a litany of podium finishes in that season, lots of good results. Are there any other ones that that stand out in your mind from, I, from I, that year that maybe weren't wins? I, I think that that is the the one where you know it was great to see what he did. But as he said, you know we we were competitive uh, right from the start uh, that year. Um, <sighs> To be honest, I, I find it quite difficult to remember that, you know, particular events like that. Uh, I, I'm certainly not a motor racing historian. Uh, I always think the best race is the next one. So I, I do find it a little bit difficult to remember them. But it, but as a season, I can certainly say that it, it was a really great season, really, really enjoyed that season. Um Funnily enough, the, the following season, 93, I, I sort of remember a lot more. And, uh, you know, the sort of real disappointment of Monaco, where we retired leading. Uh, but, uh, you know, some, some great podiums and good finishes then. And there were periods, looking in 92 and 93, where he had a few dust-ups with Ayrton Senna. So he also seemed to be a driver that was willing to... To, to go toe to toe with a driver like that, and yeah. was there was there an eagerness on Schumacher's part to to make his mark, kind of in the same way that people did against Michael later on? I think that I mean Magni Corps comes to mind. I, I, I can't remember what year that was. That it was, was ninety two, wasn't it? Was it was ninety two. Yeah. Okay, it's a good footage of angry in the pit lane, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because uh, because what what was quite amusing about that was that uh, there'd been a bit of an altercation down at the hairpin on the on the first lap, which had resulted in Ayrton retiring, Michael had carried on. Because Michael went up the back of him, was it that way around? Um, or was it the other way around? I think Michael hit Ayrton, whether it was back or side, I can't remember, but it, it was certainly Michael hit Ayrton rather than Ayrton hit Michael. Um, but, but what was quite amusing about it was that uh, later on in the race, it was actually stopped. I think it had been ra- rained too heavily or, or something like that. Uh, and of course, Ayrton by this time had gone back, got changed and everything. But as soon as the race was stopped and the cars were on the grid, Ayrton was on the grid as well, wishing to, shall we say, robustly discuss it <laughs> with Michael. And there's some great pictures, actually, of me standing between the two of them, thinking, I wonder who's going to hit me first. <laughs> so, yeah, there there was... Um, uh, 
I, I don't think I don't think it was quite what you said. It, it wasn't intimidation or anything like that. I think it was just Michael. He respected the other drivers, but he didn't have the reverence. You know, he he, he didn't care if there was a gap there. He'd go for it, and he he didn't care whether it was Ayrton Senna who was leaving the gap open. That that meant nothing to him. It was just a gap. Go for it. So um, I won't say he didn't respect them, but he didn't uh, he didn't count out to them either. There was also in that ninety three season the, the second win at Estoril, which is one that tends not to be talked about a great deal because just the the first one obviously overshadows it and then you've got championships coming along after but another one where there's an opportunity and he was able to take it because it was was quite tight with um is it Prost in the end yeah that's right actually funnily enough uh, I say I don't remember races very much but I I do remember that one because it was 93 car I I think was one of my favorite cars you know it it was a uh, the year before they banned all the toys that us engineers love playing with so I had the uh, active suspension and four-wheel steer and all, all these sort of things, automatic gearboxes. So, yeah, I do remember that well. And, and um, we'd, we'd had some great races with that car. It was a good car. Um, as I said earlier, actually, the disappointment of leading at Monaco and retiring with a, a stupid failure of a, a Tupney uh, O-ring, um, which I actually still keep on my desk to this day as a reminder <laughs> that attention to detail is is important. Um, but yeah, Estoril was a was a great win. It was the only win for that car. I, I always felt it should have won more races, but it was the only one we got, and it was a, a tight race, and it was one where uh, where where Michael had had to uh, he'd really had to put everything into that one, uh, and uh, it was one of those times when his fitness and his ability to to control the race and plan a race really really came to the fore and kind of these two seasons the two, two full seasons in 92 and 93 acted as kind of the the preparation for the big one in 94 when both the team and the driver had to prove they could they could win a championship i mean it was he was really ready at that point wasn't he to 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 fight regardless of what happened in 94 because it was yeah a story I, I, eventful season he, he, he hit the ground running i think you're right he was certainly ready uh, I would argue he was ready to win it in '93, but we didn't have the the equipment to do it uh, uh, relative to some of the others. Uh, in '94, we we had a great car at the start of the season. It, it was one of those cars where you go winter testing and you know from the first run that you've got something special. And that's happened to me a couple of times. I wish it had happened more, but you you do know. You know, it's rather like Ross's car in 2009 when that went into winter testing. I went, oh, okay, we've got a problem here. Um, well, Ross didn't have a problem, the rest of us did. So I think we we knew we had a great car and, and the legacy of that car, I was talking earlier about how much I liked the active car and all, all that sort of stuff, but... One of the things we gained in those days was we, we started to learn a lot about vehicle modelling and how to, to really understand our cars a lot better. And I think at Benetton, our, our engineering group have been particularly good at that. Um, and I think that, that helped us produce a car for 94 that uh, had very good ride, very good mechanical grip. We hadn't exploited the aero in quite the same way that some of the other active cars had. So we still had very benign aero characteristics. Or let's say we recognised we needed to be more benign in 94. So we had all that right. Um, 
But I think, unfortunately, uh, there were... How can I put it? There were elements within the team who perhaps weren't ready to, to win a championship. And um, I guess what I'm alluding to there is that it's rather a shame that the upper management of the, the team went into battle with the FIA right at the start of the season. Uh, and of course that clouded everything through through the whole season. And it, it, yes, we won the championship, but I, I have to say that's a, a season that there were many aspects of it that I really didn't enjoy. Uh, I didn't enjoy the innuendo that, that came from it. And to be honest, that even to this day still exists in certain quarters. Well, it, it was one of the things I wanted to ask you about because it's almost been elevated to fact, hasn't it? Now, the traction control things, all emanating from, no, from it, Pacific it, Grand Prix, wasn't it? The, I mean, people regard it as Yes, exactly. Fact, it, it hasn't so been elevated to fact because it's not fact. Yeah, but in, and in and the I mind, will state that yeah. very, very clearly. But I know what you mean. Uh, and this is one of the troubles with with the internet. You know, it, it allows things to be said so often that they... That, that, that fiction does turn into to apparent fact or fake news as it's known on the other side of the water. Um, and I absolutely assure you, you know, if there had been anything illegal on that car, as the race engineer, as the, the head of engineering, I cannot believe that anyone could have pulled the wool over my eyes and done something that, that shouldn't have been there. And in fact, with the the aspect of the launch control, traction control stuff, um, when the FIA found this sort of area on the the just the interface software, there was nothing underneath it, and we we looked at the data in in some detail. Um, even the FIA inspector at that time said, "Okay, I can see there's absolutely no way there's any traction control on this car." But of course, that wasn't what it was about. It was about politics. And uh, that's what I meant when, earlier when I said, was the team ready to win the championship? Probably not. Yeah, you've got to keep on the right side of the, of the governing body. <laughs> you, you, you do, absolutely. And you, you've got to have, uh, I won't say reverence, but you've got to have respect. And uh, that's as true today as it was then. And of course, that led to two race bans and disqualifications. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it went from bad to worse because it, it actually ended up being a personal battle and that's a that's a real shame and it's uh it's something that to be honest didn't didn't bring much credit to our sport i mean looking at the other big story of 94 that thing that dominates it, obviously the death of and senna which kind of suddenly elevated michael from the kind of coming man to f1 star driver in almost instantly before he'd had the chance to win a championship i mean he seemed to respond to that very well, but did there was there any impact on him that suddenly he was he was the the favourite, he was the star driver, and did did that no, play in no, his mind in any way? Not at all, because I I don't think in his mind it elevated him at all. I, I think he felt that he'd been completely ready for that, probably for a couple of years, probably since that win at Spa. It, to him, it was just a. Um, a logical progression to be world champion. Uh, and I don't think he ha ever had any doubts that he would be. And I don't think he ever had any doubts that it was going to come soon. Now, with Ayrton's tragic death, of course, it, it, it perhaps made it easier for him. Um, but at the same time, actually, some of the changes that were made to the cars as a result of that, and, and for those who don't remember, it, it was decided that... Uh, 
we really needed to slow the cars down. Now, looking back on it, I don't think that was a particularly good decision because the, the accident was nothing to do with the cars being too fast or anything like that. But nevertheless, I, th- I think there was such uh, the public opinion was such that we perhaps needed to do something, and many things were done. There was um, the diffusers were cut down. The, the plank first appeared after that to to try and raise the ride heights. We even had to cut holes in the airbox to reduce engine power and all, all sorts of things. And this beautiful car that we had taken out for winter testing and realised that we got something that really was very very special. By the time post-Imola, and in fact going on as things were introduced one after the other at subsequent races, uh, this this beautiful car was no longer quite as beautiful as it had been. And and in fact, um, a lot of the, the, particularly the superb aerodynamics we had on the car at that time, the, the beautiful sort of aerodynamic map shapes that we developed and learned through our active program how to how to trim a passive car to exploit those maps, a lot of that disappeared and it became a a much harder championship anyway to win, let alone the fact that, you know, we had the the race bans and the disqualifications and, you know, the the spa disqualification, for example, which to this day I think was incredibly unjust. But uh, that's the way it was then. Well, I have to ask you, why was it unjust? Because we know it was about plank wear, but... it was. Uh, we'd had one of those classic weekends where uh, we'd had a typical sort of wet Friday and Saturday at Spa and then a dry Sunday. So um, we hadn't got the car well dialed in. And uh, in the, the warm-up on Sunday morning, which was a, a session we used to have on Sunday morning, doesn't exist anymore. It's half an hour of just running the cars, just making sure everything was ready for the race. We were trying to get the ride heights right, and I don't think we did get them particularly right. And even on the laps to the grid, Michael was saying, oh, it's still touching a little bit too much, and we lifted it up a bit more. But the the fact was that we went into the race, and at the end of the race, uh, this plank, which was a new device, only been on for a couple of races, and and it was a 10-millimeter thick piece of let's call it wood it, it, it was slightly different to wood but it, it, it let's call it wood uh, and the rule stated that it mustn't wear down to to less than nine millimeters but if it did in any place then at that time the idea was that you had to take the plank off and weigh it and it had to be at 90 percent of the the weight of it, it, its uh, original weight uh, in scrutineering at the end of the race, it was found to be under nine millimeters at, at the front. But the the FIA said, "Well, that's it. Then it's illegal." And the, this sort of backup mechanism of you should take it off and, and weigh it. And remember, all of this stuff had been brought in mid-season, so it wasn't like they were written regulations. A lot was done with technical directives and, and things like that. Uh, and it, it it all became rather unclear. And uh, we were disqualified. We appealed the disqualification because in addition to, to the fact we probably did have the ride out a little bit too low, um, Michael had had quite a, a severe off in, in one of the laps and there were big gouges out of it. So it wasn't it just... Spun it across the exit curve, didn't it, it? Precisely. So it wasn't just that we had a, a, a smoothly worn plank that had gone down below nine millimetres. There were actually gouges out of it, which they also measured, obviously, below nine millimetres. So... Uh, yeah, I, to me it wasn't the 
most pragmatic decision. But uh, again, it it was unfortunately a political decision, I think. And of course, the one other thing that, that stands out is the way the championship was clinched in Adelaide. This incredible race they had for thirty-five odd laps with Hill chasing Schumacher, and then the then the instant. What what do you remember of uh, of that? That I mean. I guess with everything that had happened, the, the pressure must have been... I remember being incredibly angry afterwards um, because, as you say, the pressure was so intense. Uh, we, we wanted that championship so badly. We had, uh, you know, mid-season, I think after Canada, we had an enormous lead in the championship. Um, and it it seemed hard to believe then that we, we couldn't... That we could lose it. And yet, as the season wore on, and as I say, the the car got a little bit neutered. We had disqualifications. We had two race ban. It all became quite difficult. The constructors' championship had gone, so the drivers' championship was everything. So the pressure was absolutely intense. More so, you know, I was forty-two years competing in Formula One, and I don't think ever. There maybe Brazil 2006 was the only time I felt the sort of pressure anywhere near we had then. But but believe me, um, Adelaide 94 was more than Brazil 2006. So the pressure was huge. The accident occurred between Damon and Michael. Uh, Michael had gone off. He'd broken the steering. That That's a fact. Um, didn't know it at the time because we didn't have the sort of level of real-time telemetry that we we have now um so he'd, he'd been out he, regardless he, of the, the yeah, contact with the wings. A, a, absolutely yes uh big yeah yeah i'm sure he would the uh yes the damage was on the other side so yeah uh that was it so i'd seen seen it all on television i'd seen the collision with with damon um I was really worried that, you know, it would go to the stewards or, or, or whatever. Um, so I, I wasn't happy about it all. But but interestingly, at no point did I think it was deliberate. Uh, that, that never occurred to me. And it's only many, many years later when you started to uh, look at some of the things that, that happened in Michael's career, um, you know, Hareth. Uh, Monaco qualifying, those sort of things. We, you suddenly thought, well, actually, looking back at '94, I wonder. And you know, I, I'll, I'll defend Michael to the hilt because he 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 is a wonderful guy, he's a great driver, but he's a, a really genuine human being as well. But I think that Hareth and particularly Monaco, which was perhaps the, the the worst of the lot in terms of blatancy, I think it showed that. Michael was a great guy because he, you know, he used to think about things and he used to think deeply and he'd make good decisions. Uh, but he was also intensely competitive. And I think on occasions, the rapid response to that intense competitiveness perhaps overruled the, the good thinking that was there most of the time. So looking back on Adelaide in 94, was there an element of, 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 it certainly wasn't premeditated. There's no way it'd be premeditated. But, but in that instance, when he realized, you know, the car was damaged, probably looked in his mirror. In fact, I think he did because you see it on the, on the video, saw Damon, 
tried to pull over. What was he thinking at the time? I, I don't know. Only he will know, and maybe he, even he wasn't sure at the time. Well, I always think of it, sometimes you can get almost crossed wires because you've got that absolute desperate focus on trying to do something. And sometimes there's only one option, which is not really acceptable. But in the moment, you don't necessarily have the have the time to compute through all that. And it- yeah, possibly, possibly. And and you know, I, I I think your first your first reaction is, oh, I'm being overtaken. I've got to block that overtake. Uh, and actually, I haven't got full control of my car, so it's never going to going to work. So uh, I I don't want Michael's career to be thought of in those terms you know there, there were there were three decisions that could have been made better and you know crikey i i, I know more than most how uh, an incorrect decision can affect your career um i think what we should remember is you know just what a not just a great driver michael was in his career but what a wonderful person he is yeah. and, and i very deliberately use the present tense no, very, very much so. And if you look at it purely on driving ability, he he was basically wiped out of a quarter of the season by various disqualifications and bans, and he still won the championship. I don't think anyone would argue that that wasn't an absolutely deserved championship. And of course, the following season, uh, the final season with Benetton, he did dominate. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, very probably slightly underrated car with a switch to the to the Renault engine. I think he won eleven races all told with with Johnny Herbert's uh, and won the constructors' championship. Of course, so. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think it was underrated. <laughs> well, no, not not. Yeah. But I just said maybe think on, yeah. on the outside, people looked at what Williams lost by the occasional yeah. lost win, rather than actually that's a, yeah, maybe that's a right, really actually. really yes. good car. Um, but by that point, he was kind of fully realised, wasn't he, Schumacher? Oh, yeah. that he was an yeah. absolute winning yep. machine. Yeah. And in, obviously, when he moved on to Ferrari, I mean, I remember interviewing Michael a few years ago and asked him what was the reason behind it and uh, behind leaving Benetton, and he said, "Well." I knew we could maybe win the next year's championship, the next couple of years perhaps, but he could see at Ferrari had the possibility to really dominate and that um, Benetton, Enstone, whatever you want to call it, would always be a little bit cyclical and up and up and down. Um, is that what it felt like at the time? What was, what was it like when you realised he was off? I'm very disappointed uh, when he left. Uh, I think his decision was absolutely correct. Um, we were a private team uh, and Ferrari were something really quite quite different um i don't think you know michael none of us sort of at that time were thinking we may become renault or anything like that as far as we were concerned we were benetton which was a long way off of course that happening wasn't it 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 was yeah it it was still yeah five six years away um we were still going to to operate you know as a we were a 200 man team something like that at the time some really good people, uh, fabulous people. That, that really was a good team, um, most of whom are still around in Formula One. Um, but no, I, I think he was quite right. He he realised that uh, his career needed to move on, and uh, I had no problem with that whatsoever, other other than disappointment. You weren't sent to follow him over to Ferrari. They, I think they spoke I to just about. Well, yeah. they, they spoke to just. They even asked Gary Anderson from what he does. But you know, <laughs> why do you say that? <laughs> even I, no, I like to. I like to give Gary a hard time. I know he's he's good, but you know, but you stayed. Yeah. You stayed loyal to Anderson. Uh, I, I did. It's quite interesting actually because um, when it, it, it was all happening and uh, Ross was also thinking. Well, no, Ross was 
was going. That was a known thing. It was Rory. We weren't quite sure about it at the time. But um, Ross and Flavio, I, I was chief engineer at that time, and Ross and Flavio both wanted me to, to become technical director when, when Ross left. And I really didn't want to do that. I, I had the best job at Enstone. Why did I want anything else? Um, but they they persuaded me that, that 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 was the right thing to do, which in retrospect I'm so glad I did do. But then when Michael said, well, what about Ferrari? I, I said, no, you know, I've taken on this challenge and if I go to Ferrari, I'm just going to be a race engineer uh, and I've got a chance at Benetton of being technical director and lots of things I wanted to do, lots of things, you know, I'd learned so much from Ross, wonderful guy to work for. Um, I still had Rory with me, who'd been my mentor for really since I started in, in Formula One. Uh, and even a little bit before, you know, he'd been a, a, a friend I could call on. So uh, I, I was absolutely determined I was going to make Benetton work um, without Michael. Uh, and that to me was a, a much more interesting and a much harder challenge than going to Ferrari repeating it all over again with a red shirt on instead of a blue shirt. I, I didn't see much attraction in that. Well, I guess we talked about Benetton being a team ready to become a championship team and Schumacher being the right driver almost after that. It was the right team, but with a, not necessarily the, the right drivers. Well, it, it was a bit more than that because, uh, to be honest, we, we then went into a, an era where we were really struggling for money. Um I remember, you know, as you when you win a championship, you 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 obviously reap the, the benefits of it, um, both in terms of the the uh, the money that you used to get from from Bernie in those days, and uh, and the sponsorship. Uh, and I remember we, we we thought long and hard about what we should be doing with it, uh, and essentially that money went into building the wind tunnel at, at Enstone. Uh, but then as we moved into the late 90s, it, it really was was difficult. And, and it, it's funny, you know, when people talk about the costs of, of going racing these days, which, yes, they are incredibly high. But um, people talk about the cost of engines as, as part of it. Now, in the late 90s, I remember signing off on £17 million for engines, the Supertech engine. And at the end of the year, getting another bill because we'd done more testing than we planned to do. So, you know, it, it, it was really expensive going going racing in, in those days. And Benetton being a, a private company, albeit a, a, yeah, a very successful, very wealthy company, they weren't prepared to start pouring money into Formula One in the way Ferrari at that time particularly were doing. So it was becoming more and more difficult. And the late 90s became very much about, really, I, I think I could see the writing on the wall and I knew that our only, the only future we could have was to become a manufacturer's team. And uh, so that, that was very much my ambition in sort of 98, 99, was to, to hope that a manufacturer would come along and buy us. And, of course, Renault was the, the sort of logical one. We were using their engines... Um, they were making noises about coming into to Formula One. 
Flavio Briatore was not involved with the team at, at, at that time. Um, the Benetton family had, had put their own people in and moved Flavio on. Flavio wanted to get back. He was the sort of middleman between Benetton and, and Renault. And, and so that's the way it went. But I, I think to answer your question, no, until until we became a manufacturer team and built the, the team up again to what was required by the mid-2000s, you know, which was a an immensely different team to the mid-90s in terms of size, in terms of ability, in terms of equipment. Uh, until we got to that, we weren't going to win another championship, whereas Ferrari were there, they were ready. So very logical thing for Michael to do. And of course, in the end, it was it was that Renault team, yourself and Fernando Alonso, that knocked Ferrari and Michael Schumacher off their perch. Yeah, some irony in that, isn't there? <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for your insight into Michael Schumacher. Obviously, a fantastic time of your career, and it's great to have the benefit of someone who worked so closely with him to talk about him. So thanks very much, Pat Simmons. It's a pleasure. Well, fascinating stuff from Pat Simmons. Really interesting to see what it was like working up close with, with Michael Schumacher. Uh, Glenn, how... Do you think we should look back at those Benetton years, 94 and 95 championships, and of course, led the team to the 95 Constructors Championship as well. But taking that team to two world championships, we actually have to probably consider that equal to anything he went on to uh, to achieve at Ferrari. Yeah, I think that's right, because at Ferrari, there was the resources were, were vast. If as close as you could get in Formula One at the time to infinite resource, you know, anything Michael, Ross Braun or anybody else wanted, they could get at that time. If it was a car pounding around Fiorano day after day after day, if it's Bridgestone throwing hundreds and hundreds of tyres, probably at Luca Badoa at the time, uh, for him to test, to to give Michael some feedback, everything was there. The resources were, were huge. So the success that followed was a result of fantastic work in getting Schumacher. And as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, in getting the right people around him, um, to do the job and, and Jean Todt must get a lot of credit for doing that as well and not just believing that Schumacher was the one piece of the puzzle that Ferrari were missing but you have to remember the sort of team Benetton was at the time as we said at the start and the fact that back-to-back championships shows that it wasn't a fluke you know 94 is a crazy season Schumacher missed races there was all, all the accusations of what Benetton may or may not have been up to as Pat referred to uh, to be fair to him but then in 95, it felt like a bit more of a clean slate. They had the Renault engine, the same as Williams. So it instantly became more of a level playing field. And I think Schumacher was much stronger in 95. And he, he destroyed Damon Hill, as Damon has admitted several times since. that you know Mentally, he was, he was broken as that season went on. And Schumacher just went from strength to strength to get himself to the position where he was worth the crazy money that Ferrari and their backers were willing to pay to prize him away from Benetton. And... What I think is fascinating is that you've talked about this uh, previously, Ed, and I know Ross Braun, and I think you said even Michael Schumacher has said this himself in the past. There is a feeling that if he'd stayed at Benetton, he probably could have won certainly more races and maybe even more championships, which is amazing when you think that it feels like Schumacher left at the end of 95 and Benetton almost became a spent force overnight. Yeah, very much so. I remember interviewing Schumacher when he was racing for Mercedes at Interlagos a few years ago and asked him about that. And he said, well, yeah, but I think probably there was a good chance of winning in 96, maybe even 97. Obviously, once you get to the end of 97, Renault pulls out as a works engine supplier. And so 98, there would have been no chance with with Benetton. But yeah, he feels there was a realistic chance. And of course, we have to remember that 
it was very specific to Schumacher, the car that was developed by, by that stage. And you speak to Johnny Herbert, who was his teammate right at the end of 94 at Benetton and then through the 95 season. In fact, won two races, coincidentally, both the races where uh, Schumacher retired after a collision with Damon Hill. Yes, Herbert talked about the the way that car was for Schumacher, the, the kind of rotation point was somewhere in front of the front wing. So it was really hard to drive. And Lacey and Berger, two top drivers, proven Grand Prix winners, struggled in 96 and 97 with Benetton podium finishes there was there was one win for Berger across that period but they could not do what Schumacher could do Schumacher probably could have, have done that and certainly he'd have, I'm, I've no doubt he'd have won a bunch of races in 96 and 7 but what Schumacher also realized was that Benetton was not going to be this kind of eternally successful dynastic team no team really is but Ferrari he could see that as the team that could dominate Formula One which of course it did very very successfully it took maybe a bit longer than he expected but that was the the reason for for Schumacher moving on after this after this amazing success, and you know we talk about the greatness of of, of that era of Benetton. It's it's the race wins that really stand out. Some dominant performances. He won at Spa from sixteenth on the grid. If you remember in the in the wet, slightly contentious race with Damon Hill, but we know. talked about that on a previous podcast, didn't we? His yeah, greatest exactly, yeah. victories. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a stunning win, and then you have Spain ninety four when he got stuck in fifth gear and still managed to finish in second place behind behind Damon Hill in a race he should have won just so many great victories and particularly in 94 when you think of all the circumstances surrounding what was going on I know Pat kind of played that down a bit but it's got to be difficult when suddenly you're kind of the main man in Formula One after everything that's gone on and then you're having disqualifications thrown at you You it's banned from two races and disqualified from from two others and regardless of the whys and the wherefores of that that's basically what a quarter of the season he's, he's he's missed out on so no matter what you say about that 94 title victory and the way it ended you know you, you can't say that Schumacher didn't put together a tremendous season and, and ultimately deserve to win win the championship even if what happened to Adelaide kind of dominates our, our, our memory of it but yes yeah, so many so many great drives in that in that period and that's what defines a great driver yeah I think the the key thing I'll pick up on there is is Spain 94 because as I said we we did that podcast episode about his greatest victories and I compiled that list and is it found on YouTube it can, yes. Uh, and it's incredibly frustrating that you feel like Spain 94 should almost be in there. Because M- Michael said at the time, I found this out when I researched it, he said that feels as good as a win because the sense of accomplishment he got from learning how to drive the car in only fifth gear and everything he had to do. And he's somewhat fortunate in that the specification of the Barcelona circuit back then didn't have any truly low speed corners, certainly not as it does today but there were plenty of corners that weren't fifth gear corners back then and he found ways of changing his his entry line or his entry speed or the way he carried momentum into the corners and I know Ed that you've looked back over the data of that race in the past and you can see that his pace dropped for maybe a handful of laps after one of his pit stops and then amazingly it seems to pick back up and if you were looking at the data from that race you would assume it was an intermittent problem that fixed itself and went away and then he was back on the pace and unfortunately had just lost too much time to Damon Hill. And again, you don't have, there aren't many drivers other than the greats who have performances like that on their CV that you can look back at. And I think that that's a defining drive for him. Well, it's that characteristic ability of being able to adapt to what is effectively a different car in that you've got a car, you get a lap time out of it a certain way then some of those parameters change, your number of gears, and you have to adapt, you have to change. Most drivers, give them a test day, they probably work, they probably work it out, but doing it in a racing situation was absolutely, absolutely remarkable. And yeah, we see so many examples of, of great drives in, the, in that 
period. And that, that one does stand out because the unusual circumstances of it. But this was a driver who was showing he was an he was an absolute genius at this stage. And it's it's actually frightening to think how good would 2002 Michael Schumacher have been in that in that Benetton, considering how, how brilliant he was. But yeah, an, an amazing period. And that's why it's been great to just talk about it and really focus on, on those years in Formula One, because they're more than just a, a little preface to what, what happened with Ferrari. It's Schumacher and Benetton is a, a fantastic story. And it's uh, great to hear from Pat Simmons and also earlier from Gary Anderson. Well, please check out autosport.com for all the latest on Formula One and the world of motorsport. Look in our plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists, all sorts of in-depth articles there. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com and F1 Racing Magazine out monthly. Also, Motorsport News newspaper. That's out every Wednesday. If you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop betting app. And I mentioned our YouTube channel there. Search for World Spot on YouTube. All sorts of videos there. You'll be able to find our Michael Schumacher's greatest wins video there. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.